Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, a mini-episode, Hathor Festivities. This is part 3 of 12 in our 12-month examination of the Egyptian religious year, its festivals and its rituals. You will find parts 1 and 2 titled New Year's Festivities and Opet Festivities, respectively. Today's episode contains references to sexual material, specifically the attributes of male sexual potency that accompanied a particular god of fertility. You can skip this section if you wish, with no loss of the narrative. Now then, on with the show. The third month of the Egyptian year took place around early October in our calendar. This month was called Hathor, although in different periods it could also be called Athir, which is just a variation on Hathor. As you can guess, this month was theoretically dedicated to the goddess Hathor, the lady of Byblos, the mistress of fertility, and occasionally the destroyer of mankind. Hathor, one of my personal favourites. Hathor, probably ancient Egypt's equivalent of Beyonce. Surprisingly, the month of Hathor doesn't actually feature any major festivals to Hathor, It has festivals to Isis, who in the New Kingdom and later sort of replaced Hathor as one of the major fertility and motherhood goddesses, but the month of Hathor is weirdly light on celebrations of the goddess herself. In fact, the month of Hathor is pretty light on major festivals altogether. Why is this? Well, Hathor had already had her great festival for the year, the festival of drunkenness at New Year, which was a ritual celebration and remembrance of the time when the goddess, in her guise as Sakmet the Powerful One, nearly drove mankind to extinction and destruction. For some reason, the month actually called Hathor was shunted back to third place, but the goddess herself was still riding high on the worship and energy provided at the festival of the New Year, so I guess she didn't really need a festival right now. Also, in purely practical terms, the third month just seems to have been a bit of a quiet one. Kind of like how we sometimes have a month or two with zero public holidays. It's just an unremarkable month in the calendar of festivals. The population of Egypt in month three was starting to look forward to the next planting season and the renewal of agriculture. Pharaohs were organising their next campaign, usually planned to begin within the next few months. Finally, the major building projects were slowing down again, as seasonal labourers started to return to their homes and fields, in order to begin work on the farm once more. With the end of the Nile flood approaching, and the agricultural season on the horizon, perhaps it's not surprising that the most notable festivals from the month of Hathor are all fertility festivals. 
there was a minor festival to the fertility god Min, whom I'll introduce in a second. But there were also two larger festivals that were part of that ongoing religious story, the legend of the great god Osiris. First of all, Min. The festival of Min took place on the 15th day of the month. For some reason, the Egyptians liked putting festivals on the 15th day. Perhaps because it was the first day of the second half of the month? Hard to say. Either way, it seems that most months of the year featured a festival on this particular day. In the third month, that festival was to the king of procreation himself, Min. Min was the god of male sexuality. If you do not wish to hear about this, I recommend fast-forwarding about 60 seconds or so. I haven't introduced Min previously, I don't think. Well, he's kind of a big deal in some ways, but in others he's a bit hard to describe. Min, as I've said, was a god of male fertility, of procreation and of growth. He has been around since the very earliest days of Egyptian civilization. Even that long ago king named Scorpion worshipped him, way back around 3100 BCE. Min endured for thousands of years, and his rule over certain natural phenomena was rarely challenged or appropriated. Min took the form of a male. He wore a crown with tall plumes and a sun disk. He wore a long beard, like the pharaohs, and so he was clearly a god with royal authority over certain aspects of nature. Min also had a couple of unique features. Firstly, Min always stands with one arm raised and crooked, his hand pointing directly up. We are not sure of the symbolism of this. It could be a gesture of smiting, or it could be a reference to the constellation Orion. Min's skin was always black. This had a specific reason. Like Osiris, whose skin was usually black or green, Min's skin was a reference to agriculture, specifically the incredibly dark and rich soil that would accumulate on the fields during the Nile flood. The floodwaters coming north from Sudan carried rich black silt that fertilized the fields. Min's skin represented that silt and mud, the fertilizer of the country, the source of its agricultural stability. So the god is always black-skinned. Min also wore a very specific costume in all cases. He wore a white shroud wrapped around him like a mummy. But this shroud did little to hide the fact that Min, the lord of male sexual energy, always sported an absolutely enormous erection. These were the aspects of his images that always appear. Without them, it is probably not Min. Worship of Min was not a huge component of Egyptian religious life. We know that males would sometimes wear amulets or pendants of the god, perhaps to increase their sexual potency. They would also make offerings of lettuce to the god, which was connected with male sexual fluids, thanks to its appearance in a chapter of the story of Horus and Seth, but more on that another day. Overall, Egyptian males seemed to have worshipped men in the hopes of increasing their own sexual potency, and also of increasing the fertility of the world and the farms around them. We have to remember that in the Egyptian mythology, the universe itself was created by male sexuality. Atum, the oldest of the earthly gods, had created the universe in an act of masturbation. So, male fertility and the flourishing of nature itself went hand in hand. Or something else in hand, if you will. Now, on to Osiris. Back in the new year, when the Nile flood began, 
the Egyptians had embarked on a long, slow memorial and celebration of the death and mummification of Osiris. This was a legend of the utmost importance. To the Egyptians, the tale of Osiris was the explanation and reason for many earthly phenomena. The discovery of agriculture, the rising of the Nile flood, the rite of mummification, and the legitimacy of the ruling king on the earth. The tale of Osiris underpinned a lot of Egyptian culture, so it was natural that they celebrated and remembered him regularly. In month one and month two, the Egyptians had remembered the death of Osiris and the disappearance of his body. The wicked Seth had either cut him up and scattered him across Egypt, or locked him up in a coffin and thrown it into the Nile. Well, in month three, the story continued. Late in the month, when the weather was beginning to cool down and the Nile flood was beginning to diminish, the Egyptians remembered the period of mourning and lamentation by Osiris's widow, Isis. Isis and her sister Nephthys, also Osiris's sister, were in a state of mourning, and so the Egyptians celebrated a rite called the Lamentations of Isis and Nephthys. The Lamentations took place on day 17. It was a small festival, just one day long, and it probably was observed in many of the great temples of the land. There, in the hidden sanctums where the statues of Isis and Nephthys would dwell, two priestesses would don the garments of the great goddesses. They would place crowns on their heads, anoint themselves with fragrant oils, and recite a prayer or a hymn to the statue of the god Osiris. The texts of this hymn or prayer survive from a much later period, the Ptolemaic era, but I will recite a portion of them here. They might have changed a bit, or a lot, between the New Kingdom and the time of the Greeks, but I work with what I have. So, the Lamentations of Isis and Nephthys. Quote, Recitation of blessings made by the two sisters in the house of Osiris, foremost of the Westerners, the great god, the lord of Abydos. When the same is done in every place of Osiris, at every feast of his. To soothe the heart of Isis and Nephthys, place Horus on his father's throne, and give life, prosperity, and health to the Osiris, the justified. It benefits the doer as well as the gods. Isis speaks, and she says, Come to your house, come to your house, you of Iunu, or Heliopolis, come to your house, your foes are no longer. O good musician, come to your house, behold me, I am your beloved sister, you shall not part from me. End quote. It goes on like that. To be honest, it's a long, long text, and I'll explore it properly down the line in the Ptolemaic era. For now, there's a link in the episode description if you want to read it. I think it would make quite a nice hymn, I have to say. The lamentations of the goddess called out to Osiris in his death, begging his bar and his car to return to this world. Little did they know, the god's body was now leaving Egypt and travelling abroad. Over the next couple of months, his travels and the story would reach their climax. The third month of the year closed with a couple of smaller festivals, neither of which provide us with too much information. There was a festival at Elephantine in the south, and this was dedicated to the goddess Anuket. She had one in month two as well, so I described it in the last mini-episode. There was also a feast day dedicated to Ma'at, 
the lady of order, and the foundation of reality itself. Although Ma'at isn't directly an agricultural or fertility goddess, worship of her is appropriate at this time of the year, because without her influence, reality itself does not function. Apart from those small festivals, there's not a lot more to say. So, until next month, enjoy your days of celebration. We'll see you soon. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered, follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.